welcome to the Soar Community Network podcast with your host, Malie Ponpadit. Here, inside our community, we help each other see, own, articulate, and release our unique message and mission into the world. Uncover your gifts and talents, release your passions, own your purpose, and let's soar together. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the SOAR Community Network podcast. I am your host, Mali Panpadith, and today we have a very special guest. He's a dear friend of mine. I've known him for years. His name is Jason Howell. Jason is the president of Jason Howell Company, a fiduciary wealth management firm that supports happy financial lives for parents who are also raising businesses. As a father of two and fellow business owner, he personally understands the challenges associated with growing a business and a family. Jason is also an adjunct professor of personal finance uh, at American University's Kogut School of Business and is an active member of many, many organizations. I won't list them all now, but we can talk about that uh, shortly. Jason is also a former United States congressional candidate and has been featured as both an independent political strategist and an established financial expert on the local ABC affiliates news channel 8, Capital Insider Program. He's also a former chapter president of both Toastmasters and the Association of Latino Professionals for America. Wow, you are also honored by George Mason University as one of the 20 prominent patriots in business and was the distinguished alumnus speaker for the 2015 School of Business graduating class. Man, oh man, Jason, welcome to the show. Hey, hi, Molly. Thank you so much. <laughs> Man, you know, I, I've, I've known you for so long, and then I read your bio, and I'm just reminded of how, like, blessed I am that you're in my life, you know? Well, I mean, I can say the same thing about you, Molly. You know, the fun thing about bios, you get to write them yourself. <laughs> and so they always turn out better than you hope. <laughs> no, but I know this, these things to be true about you um, from personal experience and time with you. Uh, what I'd like to start off um, by having you share is really a little bit about your background, you know, in terms of what led you to having your own practice and really focusing on the financial health and well-being of individuals. Sure. Thank you for um, for asking such a really a good question. It's, for me, something that's been in and out of my life, finance for a long, long time, longer than I've had my own practice and longer than I've been on the financial planning side of the industry. You know, my, my parents were immigrants. Um, I was born in California, grew up fairly normally, what I would consider normally for a while, then my parents split. And one of the things that is obvious to both my family background and most other people's is the intersection of money and life. And I believe, and I think a lot of people believe that financial planning is really life planning. And I've seen that in my life. I've seen how finances have affected decisions that I've made, certainly, but even my parents have made, siblings have made. And it's really come together for me to um, you know, put this company together and say, I'm going to be able to not just impact people's finances, but impact their financial decisions, which impacts their life. And then it's not just their life. But it's their life um, beyond themselves. And so it's the kids they may have. It's the siblings that see them. And this is just what I'm doing myself. I'm doing what I'm doing and hopefully being able to pass along 
a lot of great uh, resources and examples to um, to my family and to my friends. Now, how is your perspective on money and life planning and financial management change uh, since having your own children? You know, the um, the biggest change has been the seriousness of it all. That's typically the case with people I interact with on a client basis or even as a, a prospective client basis. Yeah, most people don't really care about financial stuff until uh, they get married. And then most specifically when they have kids, then all of a sudden they think really long term. And that's the whole reason for the word planning. You're thinking long term, longer than right now. I think a lot of people you know, who are pretty well adjusted, then they can control the right now. But if we talk about later, they get a little bit antsy and kids forces you <laughs> to uh, to think long term and to think beyond yourself. So, um, you know, for me on a personal level, when that daycare payment kept coming and I was working for a large financial institution, um, Fortune 100 company that had a certain way of doing things. Um, it was pretty obvious to me that if I wanted to be really serious about this business and that I wanted to start my own, that I should do it right now because I wanted to be successful and proud of the work that I did um, before my little baby was a little toddler or a five-year-old. And so, um, you know, better to go ahead and, and just start. And again, that's the same way people work with their looking at their finances. They start getting serious about, man, I should start saving some money. Oh, I should really put together a will boy, maybe I should have some life insurance because there's this extra person that's going to outlive them. And it just, um, it just brings it all, brings it all to perspective. Now, prior to entering into the financial world, you ran for office and let's talk a little bit about that. What was, what drove you to do that? And, um, afterwards, what led you was there a direct correlation? Was there something with that process of running that really solidified your desire to go with this round? Like, how did you get started? Yeah, the um, the thing that really pushed me was probably my background in finance and accounting. So it's a little bit of a nerdy reason, but um, I'll share it with you anyway, Molly. <laughs> so I was working on working on a book. It was to be my second book on a phrase that I had trademarked called patriotic development. And that, that concept, a little bit flowery, but it was about doing things that are not for yourself, but for the community, doing things that are bigger for yourself. We've all heard that kind of thing before. So I'm working on this outline and I just keep redoing the outline and I can't get this book you know, to, to sing the way I want it to sing. And at the same time, I've got C-SPAN on, which might have been part of the problem. Um, and this is <laughs> August of 2011, which is my birthday is in August. And whenever I have a birthday, I'm always, you know, just motivated. And um, if you may remember, if you're as nerdy as me, August 2011 was the time period where we had that debt ceiling debate and crisis in Congress. They didn't want to raise the debt ceiling because some conservatives felt like we shouldn't keep increasing our credit card. At the same time, the folks on the other side of the aisle said, well, we have to raise it. We always pay our bills and we have bills to pay. And so no one could really, until the very last moment, break this impasse. And, of course, they did the day or two before, and we got our U.S. debt downgraded by Standard & Poor's for the first time in U.S. history. And it's a funny thing. When it's the first time you've ever done something, you can never again say that you've never done it again. So our our country is 
always been very proud of its economy, always been very proud of its currency. Other countries invest in our currency because we're supposed to be the best. And here we have a chink in our armor for the first time ever that we had our debt downgraded. And so it caused me to lean back in my chair and say, wow, if um, if the folks in Congress are willing to let something that has never, ever, ever been done before happen because of politics, then maybe people like me who are interested in politics should stop trying to write books about doing things that are really big and actually start doing things. And so I, um, I like to say I, I made my decision then to run for office, but then I really made the decision to ask my wife if it was okay to run for office. And when she said yes, <laughs> I went ahead and decided to run for office. Um, and that got me going. I, I wanted to be part of the budget committee, the financial services committee. Now, these are nerd committees. These are not spending committees. These are like, how can you fix things committees? Um, I ran as an independent. And, um, you know, when I lost, I had to find a way to kind of keep up this mission, this idea of how can you make the whole realm of the economy and finances real for people and how can you fix it? And, um, you know, to continue the, the second part of your question, uh, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do after I lost. But unlike uh, Al Gore and Mitt Romney, I was not a millionaire and couldn't sit around and <laughs> worry about it. I had to do something. Right. Um, so uh, a friend of mine who was on my campaign uh, off and on, he took me to breakfast just a couple weeks out of the um, November 6th election that year, it was 2012, um, bought me breakfast, took me to the Tower Club in Tyson's, uh, which is a fancy place to have breakfast, and asked me you know, what I thought I was going to do. And I said, um, I wasn't sure. I had planned to win. <laughs> and he said, well, how about you meet my boss, which was, uh, again, at a Fortune 100 insurance-based brokerage company. And I said, well... I may have met your boss 15 years ago when I turned down the job, um, but I'll go ahead and meet him uh, again. And we had a great conversation about how what I thought was financial planning could impact families. And uh, without a resume and just a notebook, we just spoke for hours uh, a couple of times. And I decided, you know, when people ask me um, what I'm doing these days after they say, hey, Jason, I voted for you. I wanted to be able to say to them, hey, I'm still working on these issues. I'm still fighting for you. And so I took the opportunity to be what I thought was a financial advisor um, because there was no minimums at this firm or there were no minimums that people had to have before they could work with me. And um, it just seemed to make sense to me. And what I learned is how little I knew about financial advising and the way it's set up in this country, at least. And, um, you know, very shortly after I started thinking about starting my own firm. When you were thinking about that, what was going on in your head? Because again, a lot of our audience um, who listen to our podcast are either entrepreneurs already or they're mm -hmm. intrapreneurs where they're inside organizations wondering if they should be kind of launching something that's their own mm -hmm. or taking their unique gifts and talents and really playing a big role inside the organization. Um, so how how did you process like what was your decision making process like that led you to say yes i'm going to go ahead and, and start my own firm the first thing is you don't know you can do it until maybe you see somebody else do it so i started in january 2013 and about eight months later i got this magazine investment news magazine 
And on the cover, there was an article about a 23-year-old who had started her own firm in Minnesota. And my first thought was, you can do that? <laughs> I've been entrepreneurial before with stuff that wasn't financial regulation related and so confusing and crazy. I didn't know you could you know, basically start your own firm with all of that kind of red tape. And well, gee, I was over 23 for sure. So if a 23-year-old could do it in Minnesota, uh, certainly someone in his 30s could do it here in the D.C. area. So I reached out to her. I, I contacted her, and she was gracious enough to take my call. And we spoke about this thing called a registered investment advisory company. And I learned at that moment and many, many moments afterwards that even though I had spent essentially 20 years in finance and accounting, I knew very little about how this world of the financial industry worked when it came to financial planning with consumers, personal finance. And that was a surprise to me. Um, but I didn't waste any time, you know, for the next two years, practically, because I left the large firm in August of 2015, I kind of gave myself a master's class in, um, how the industry works, the options that I had as an entrepreneur. And I'd say to the people listening who are entrepreneurial and that are thinking of being that they currently are an entrepreneur at a firm, the firm that I worked for kind of sold me the same way. And it wasn't bad or anything, but it's just how firms sometimes sell their employees. They say you can be a, you know, an entrepreneur, but have a big firm around you that sort of takes care of you um, at the same time. So it's the best of the wor both worlds. You know, you're in business for yourself, but not by yourself. One may have heard that before. And, you know, what you learn when you actually become an entrepreneur who has to live off of his money, all of it, and who also has to spend money on things that are not directly related to your personal compensation, there's nothing like being an entrepreneur for real. Um, there's nothing like saying, I'm going to step outside of the big company who is maybe trying to help me not be alone and really do it. There's a significant difference. And so on one hand, it's um, there's a real opportunity in being entirely uh, on your own as an entrepreneur, at least starting off that way. But it's also a word of caution because um, you may think that, you know what, I can do this all myself, but there may be parts of it that you could be unwilling to do. And so I took two years to really figure out the, um, the industry side of things. I have been entrepreneurial since, gosh, since I was in high school. And um, I finally made the, the very serious decision in 2015 uh, to do this thing with a kid and daycare payments and the wife uh, to go full on and start my own firm. It was a very serious decision. It's not one that um, it's not one that you step away from once you make it because it's a challenge being an entrepreneur. But as long as you know your why, why you did it, it'll um, it'll keep you focused and keep you going. Now, you mentioned when you were working uh, underneath that umbrella of a larger Fortune 100 firm, I was in a similar situation many, many lives ago, it feels like. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do think it's a few lives ago for you, Molly. <laughs> yes, it has been a few lives for me. Uh, and and so coming out on your own, see, when I came out on my own, I switched industries altogether and went into building what's now the Soar Community Network. It's a little bit more creative on the marketing side. Um, now we've got the technology side as well, but the the fact that you decided to launch your own firm, but you stayed in that industry, in the financial world, 
how do you get your support system now? Because you don't have that huge headquarters that you can call upon and get your marketing material and swap out content and stick your picture on there. You know, how do right. you um, go and and get that level of support that you need to best serve your clients in such a a sensitive industry? You have to really be careful uh, in this industry because you're really in in such a pip, uh, pivotal role in their, in, in your clients' lives. That's right. And one of the things you commit to when you decide to stay in this industry is you commit to education, continuing education, uh, continuing licenses or certifications. And, and I'm working on one now. I've got plans for one next year and plans for one the year after that, all to keep current. Uh, but you also keep an open mind with the people that you bump into. And so I, I joined associations. I'm a member of the Financial Planning Association. There's also a network called the XY Planning Network, um, really specific to kind of what I'm doing. And that helps when you really niche into a group that's doing something that you're doing. So these are folks that are typically either Generation X or Generation Y that are looking to cater to that same community uh, they've decided to spin off and start their own firms, or some of these folks have just gotten a you know, college degree in financial planning, spent just a few years at a firm, gotten their certification, and decided, even with just a few years of experience, like that 23-year-old, to start their own firms and revolutionize the way financial planning works. And you know, I should step back from that. Not truly revolutionize the way financial planning works but revolutionize how it is delivered and who it is delivered to. If for centuries, you could get comprehensive planning for very, very wealthy people. You know, in today's day, that might be a family that has over 20 million, 30 million, 100 million dollars uh, in assets. But for a very short period of time, meaning in the maybe less than 10 years, there's been an opportunity for people with perhaps much more normal kinds of wealth um, normal income to be able to get comprehensive advice from someone who is an expert who's willing to look at everything and who has created a business model that can afford it. And that's really been the challenge, I think, for the industry is they, the, they, the ubiquitous they never really took the time to create a model that the regular, you know, family could afford where they could get that comprehensive advice. And today that's changing, which is really good. Uh, the part of the industry that caters to that community is the fastest growing part of the industry, but it's still the smallest. Uh, but what you find today is there are individuals now and even some companies, thanks to some rules that have been put in place by our federal government, uh, that are changing and saying, you know, there's a different approach we're supposed to have with people. And we could have figured that out maybe before, but thankfully, uh, regulation and law has helped pushing us into that corner. And now you're seeing very large established firms try to work with uh, the community differently. And, of course, you see individuals who spun off and started their own firms doing that because that's why they did it in the first place. You know, personally, um, I'm connected to, I guess it's a little over, a little under 400 advisors in this XY planning network who are doing the same kinds of things that I'm doing, trying to cater to, um, to people in the same way that I am. There, there are forums for that. There's a National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, NAPFA, uh, another similar group that says, you know, we are fiduciaries. We want to take care of people. And, um, you know, if you need something, follow our forum. 
And so I, I connect myself to a lot of different advisors, even advisors who, um, who've been in a lot longer than me and some folks who have been in less time than me, but have been hyper-focused and specifically talented in areas that I'm not. Uh, that's, that's a big part of it. Continuing education all the time. And number two, connecting to people who are doing what you're doing. Now, as you were sharing that, you talked about regulations and how things are changing in the federal government. And so how do, how do the law, money, and people intersect? How? I, I could say how often, and I could say all the time <laughs> <laughs> about that. You know, I, I, you mentioned I teach the personal finance class at American University, and you know, one of the things I try to tell them is and show them is how, um, well, financial planning is life planning. I mentioned that. I always start off and I say financial planning is. And uh, by the end of the semester, I help the whole class chimes in and says life planning. And I'm like, yes, I've taught you something. Right. Uh, so on the one hand, uh, finances and people, finances and life intersect just about all the time. People go to a certain college because of how much money they have available. Um, if they go to that college, regardless of how much money they have available, then they might have a student loan, which affects how they graduate and what kind of job they maybe have to take. You, you hear of attorneys sometimes who want to get into immigration law or advocacy law for people who are less fortunate, but they decide to go into corporate law for a few years so they can pay back their student loans. Um, and then they hope to get back to why they got into law in the first place. But at that point, a lot of times they're stuck with the financial lifestyle that they built up over the past few years and they almost can't, which is sad. Um, you have people who, you know, just think of your family, just think of people that you, you know, have as friends, where you live in the Washington DC area, you are making a huge decision, um, about your life, depending on where you live. But typically it's about your finances. If you have the ability to get a half million dollar home, well, you can get a half million dollar home close to the district if you like, but it's going to be a really tiny home in a developing neighborhood. Uh, otherwise, you can go down to an uh, area, a suburb called Loudoun County, Virginia, and get a really nice home with a basement and a lot of space and maybe a two-car garage. It might be a townhouse still, but it'll be plenty of space. Um, but you've now directed how much time you're going to spend on the road because most people's jobs are east. And it's a really big decision. So I've, I've seen this happen personally, and I've certainly seen it happen with friends and family of mine. And the last thing I hope to show people I have as clients or people that are students of mine or just people in passing is how that law interacts with money. I think people can get the life and the money pretty well. You know, if you only have X amount of dollars, you can only go to the movies so often. You can only take so many trips. You can only... Um, in some cases, meet a certain type of people. Um, <laughs> but uh, when it comes to law, people sort of raise an eyebrow, like, what do you mean there? And running for office, I ran for office on a lot of financial issues. And when I lost, I said to myself, well, maybe I can't write the laws for everyone's family, but I can assist people with deciphering the laws for your family and your family and every client family that I have. Because number one, it's an awareness of what the laws are. And most most tax preferences are all law. You know, there's a lot of conversation about changing the tax code. 
So every every deduction you can get is all about law. Every set aside you can get is law. Being able to pass your assets to your family members or to your girlfriend or to your uh, spouse or or to whomever you like is all about law. And so when you um, you take a deep dive into financial law, you almost start to think that the financial law is more important to understand than the um, than almost the finances themselves. I mean, even a life insurance policy, a life insurance policy is a contract between you and the insurance company. They give you a packet of paper for, for such and such money a month. <laughs> you pay a monthly fee, and all you have to show for it is this pack of paper. And you're like, what did I buy here? Um, but if you pass away, that contract denotes that that insurance company is going to give your beneficiaries, which is a law, um, a certain lump sum of money, and that's going to affect those beneficiaries in their life. And so understanding financial law, understanding uh, what you want in life, if you get all those things together, um, you'll start to really make sense of it. Now, Jason, I know that we can't give a specific advice. Uh, I've been in financial planning, and I understand <laughs> that that is definitely a rule. But certainly, from a very broad perspective, what do we as independent consumers, everyday people, what should we be thinking about when it comes to having a healthy financial, um, well, let's just say feeling secure financially? Where do we begin uh, what are some of the things that we should be doing today that would help us stay on the right track? It's the simplest of things, which is um, to some people surprising. If you do the simple things right, the other stuff will be available to you. You'll figure it out. You'll have your banker calling you for the complex things. I mean, that'll right. all happen. That's right. uh, but, so here are the simple things. Number one, just know what you have. And, and you might say, the generic you uh, listener might say, oh, I, I know what I have. I have 100 bucks in my checking account. Okay, well, that's great. Uh, but what do you have as a lifestyle, let's say? So what do, you, what do you spend every month? The first thing I do with my clients is uh, connect them to a really nice, I think it's nice, a software system that it doesn't make them have to go collect receipts for 30 days, but actually just tracks and connects all their bank accounts and their credit cards and it shows what they spend money on. And we hope at the end of two or three months that we've kind of got a good feel, good idea of what they spend money on. And once they see what they spend money on, they are able to make really good decisions before I even say anything. You know, there, there's a vocabulary that says discretionary versus non-discretionary. So non-discretionary is supposed to be the stuff I have to spend every month. And discretionary is basically stuff that I choose to spend because I want to. Sometimes when you see your discretionary, you start to think, well, yeah, I really want to go out for lunch. That's important to me. But I want to pay for a vacation without using a credit card a little bit more. So I choose to allocate my discretionary a little differently. And um, no better example has there ever been than a client that I had, a um, very attractive friend of mine. She asked me to be her financial advisor for a time. Single, uh, and she wanted to buy her own home. She was renting, and I said, "Okay, the first thing we're going to do is figure out where you are. So let's itemize everything that you spend on." And we did that. And um, she just wanted to save a thousand dollars a month, and even though she made six figures, she couldn't do it. And so when we finally listed her discretionary, non-discretionary, of course, her largest expense was her rent. 
Her second largest expense was discretionary. It was working out. Mm. And so working out, like, how could that be the case? Well, she spent a, a little bit of money every month on parking. She spends money every month, of course, in the gym membership. She spent money every month on the protein shakes. But the big one was she spent money every month on a personal trainer. And when you added all that up, it was about $960 per month. Wow. Now, she was making six figures. She was very well established in her profession. She's very smart, but just never put it down on paper or a screen, not a phone screen, not a computer screen, that she was spending almost $1,000 on just working out. Now, as a financial planner, I can't tell someone that they should or should not do something, especially if it's, you know, for your body. <laughs> That's the best. It's the only body you're going to get, right? Right. Um, but she could, after thinking about it, make that decision about how she took care of her body. Um, and in fact, she did. About three months later, she told me that she got a, uh, a gym membership with the county that cost her about $250 a year. Uh, and very shortly after that, with the blessings of a tax refund, uh, paid off her student loan and her credit card debt and was in a position to save four figures per month until she went to Rome. So, so then it stopped. <laughs> uh, but uh, she had the ability, the wherewithal to figure it all out on her own uh, at the very moment that she looked at what she had, what she was doing and what she had. So that's the first thing. The second thing is if you're not um, you know, single and just in a vacuum on your own and you have a spouse or a significant other or an entire family, uh, the second thing is just to talk about money. Talk about it when it's not the end of the month. Just talk about it some. Um, what you want, what you really want. Um, even kids, I mean, ask them if they would prefer to go to Disney or if they'd like to go to the movies every weekend, you know, and let them make the discretionary choice. Once you start talking about finances and identifying it, those two things together, uh, you really start to realize that there's such a thing as intentionality and uh, and goals, and you can be just as intentional about your money as you are in these other parts of your life where you've done some really great things. I, I think most people have the ability to do well, but it's sort of removing the taboo around money and treating it just like every other function that you do well in life. That's great. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you so much. So let me ask you this. Are you going to give um, the Store Community Network an exclusive? Are you ever going to run for office again? <laughs> Here's an exclusive. Make, make news today, right? Um, <laughs> breaking news. You know, breaking news. Breaking news. This is going to go out. Um, I don't know whether I will run for office, which means that um, I'm not saying no, which is an important thing to say. I had a lot of people come up to me when I was running and they said, wow, I, I, this is amazing. I, I can't believe you're running for office. Why would you want to do this? And I gave them my reasons. But then I followed up and say, you know, how about you? Would you ever run for office? And they'd say, no, gosh, no, no, never. Um, and that was the only sad part of running for office. It was mostly positive for anyone who was interested in doing it. It's really a positive experience. But the only sad part I had was how people were so personally against running. And um, it's, it was only sad, you know, tragedies are sad. It's only sad because they don't realize that, listen, you're just as, you know, interesting and as have as many flaws as anyone else running for office. It would be terrific if someone like you, and it was just about everyone I engaged, would run. Uh, but there's, there's certainly um, perhaps well-founded fear in being so public. 
But at the same time, I think there's such an opportunity. It's a learning experience personally. Uh, and it's also a great, great opportunity to meet people eye to eye and say, I- I'd like to serve you. Will you let me serve you? And that's attractive and appealing. It's what I do in my business today. And so if I ran for office again, it would just be an extension of that. That's fantastic. Well, Jason, how can our audience find you, perhaps uh, become a client of yours, or just get more information? Because I know you have a lot of great content available to um, you know, possibly my audience members, but you certainly serve a lot of people in the community beyond your practice. And I'd love for them to be able to connect with you. Oh, well, thank you for asking, Molly. Uh, really simple. Just go to jasonhowell.com, J-A-S-O-N-H-O-W-E-L-L.com, and you'll be able to find my contact information there. If you just search Jason Howell in Google, I come up pretty well, which is nice. And I'd be happy to speak with just about anyone who is interested in learning more about how they can get started on their own or, or find the right kind of help. Remember, I did that two-year master's program in my mind <laughs> when I was at the large firm, and I, I know more about this than people typically care to hear. So if you'd like to learn more, uh, please come my way, and I'd be happy to share. Great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Oh, I enjoyed it, Malie. Thank you for the invite, and thank you for the conversation. Absolutely. Well, hopefully we'll have you back if you... Well, even if you don't run again, we'll have you back. How's that? <laughs> even, okay. Well, I, I, hopefully, if everything goes as I expect, I'll have a book at the end of the year just called How Money Works. That's great. And I, I think it'll be something that people can not only use for themselves, but uh, give away to people who are starting to experiencing something new and different in their lives and might need a little bit of a guide. And so maybe you'll have me on for that. Okay. That sounds like a great plan. Yes, definitely. We're happy to promote and support because I know that, you know, you, you've been in my life for a while now and I know you personally, I know that you love to share and give and support. So we're happy to pay that forward. Thank you, Jason. Thank you again. And for everyone listening, thank you so much for being a part of the SOAR Community Network. We appreciate you so much, and we will talk to you very, very soon. Take care, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of SOAR Podcast. Join us by visiting soarcommunitynetwork.com.